Welcome to the 603 Stories Podcast, a monthly mental health podcast made by young adults for young adults, where we share stories, make connections, and find hope. Any ads throughout this podcast are not associated with 603 Stories or the 603 Stories Podcast. There will be sensitive subjects discussed during this podcast. Should you need them, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Or you can text the Crisis Text Line by texting 741-741. Hello there. My name is Heather Morris. And I'm Jace Troy. And this is 603 Stories. 603 Stories is a podcast dedicated to giving young adults a platform to talk about mental illness, share about our journeys, and navigate mental wellness as a community. Uh, Jace and I are both New Hampshire born people uh, and current New Hampshire residents and have had a lot of experience navigating a wide variety of experiences in Southern New Hampshire. Whether that be our own experiences or working with people um, in the mental health field. But with that being said, neither Heather or I are mental health professionals. We are not social workers or therapists. We are simply two young adults who are passionate about mental wellness and helping other young adults in the community find it as well. We decided to do this um, because we have volunteered with a lot of organizations over time um, whose missions are rooted in mental health. And we have seen a lot of different scenarios where a deeper understanding of mental health was needed, especially by young adults. We have found that adults often talk at young adults and teenagers when teenagers and young adults are the ones who know themselves best and know what they need. Jason and I actually met uh, working in substance misuse prevention with young people, uh, primarily teenagers. Um, And we really wanna take this platform and this opportunity to share our own stories uh, and do what we can for providing stigma reduction and showing the benefits of seeking help. And as two people who are 23 and 24, we figured um, it would be a good way to engage the community by having young adults speaking to young adults, as well as possibly interviewing 
other young adults. So Heather and I, as far as I know, were both uh, born and raised in the New Hampshire area. So we've had a lot of experience in and around um, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, that kind of area, um, and gotten to work with a lot of different organizations. Uh, through our work in human services, uh, I have found myself to become very passionate about LGBT resources, uh, recovery, including substance prevention, misuse. Most importantly, the biggest connector for all of these has been mental health and figuring out the root of what is causing um, stress or trauma in people's lives and finding ways to help. So with that, um, Heather and I and our lovely team decide that a podcast was the best way to reach young adults in New Hampshire. Um, for me, I always felt like as a young adult, adults were always talking at me, telling me what I needed to do and how I needed to go about my own healing. Um, for me, mental illness has been present in my life since I was in second grade, if not earlier. So it's something that I have been dealing with and I've come up with my own coping strategies along the way. So to be talked at and told what to do and what will and won't work was hard for me to grasp, especially since I have been talking to a lot of other young adults for a long time um, and helping them figure out what would be best for them on their journey. So it's hard for me to just accept that adults always know all when oftentimes they aren't being told everything that's going on underneath the surface, especially with young adults or teenagers. I completely agree. And in both personal experiences and communicating with young people and young adults, I've seen that across the board, whether it's just, um, you know, even through the process of recovery, them having a specific mindset and expectations for the route that you should take, or even invalidating and um, diminishing the uh, weight of the experience that you're going through, um, especially, you know, in younger years, uh, middle school, high school, a lot of it is brushed off as, you know, high school drama or Oh, you're just a kid. You'll Hormones. grow out of it. Exactly. <laughs> Hormones. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but in reality, even these situations that adults see as uh, minimal or easy enough to brush off, they could be the biggest thing going on in a young adult's life at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's important that they're validated. So with that being said, we decided that 603 Stories would be a good way to create a platform for young adults to share their stories, share their experiences, and come together as a community in order to build up each other's mental health. With that being said, today we have decided to just take an opportunity to share a little bit about who we are, where we come from, and what we're doing now in order to help ourselves and the community come together and be as strong as we can with our mental health. For me, it really started very young. Um, even looking back at elementary school, um, there was very clear signs of just extreme anxiety. Uh, and the behaviors of that wasn't really noticed for what it was. Um, 
you know, I was the kid that was always in the nurse's office with a stomach ache, <laughs> you know, and that became like crying wolf, you know, faking sick to try to get out of school um, in the perception of many of the adults in my life. Uh, and even, you know, until adulthood, looking back at those circumstances, I had no idea that that was, you know, my body trying to tell me like, hey, you know, you're stressed out. <laughs> um, and, you know, throughout middle school and high school and on, it just amplified, really hitting a turning point in high school specifically when I was diagnosed with Lyme disease. Um, you know, coupling mental illness with a physical chronic illness was a challenge, especially while navigating a lot of the stress of high school specifically. You know, that's a very high intensity emotional point in many young folks' lives. Uh, and I can't say that that was different for me. <laughs> so trying to do the juggle of everything um, was a lot. Yeah. And as I, you know, really started to navigate and understand what was sitting with me and um, analyze the ways that I was feeling, which was not good. You know, I was anxious, I was depressed, um, and especially with chronic illnesses, you know, I was fatigued all the time, and it was really hard for me to separate what was what. Um, and again, kind of coming back to the adults in my life, I don't think they really saw the weight of what I was carrying, um, both physically and mentally. And uh, they had a very specific idea of what I should be doing to feel better, whether it's exercising more or, um, you know, trying harder in school. Um, and for me, you know, I was struggling to even get out of bed, like exercise. Yes, though it might have been helpful, seemed completely unreachable. Um, it's interesting because I feel like those adults tend to have so much advice, but the time to listen and actually ask what you need and answer the questions with you seems to be something far, far away. <laughs> Completely. And I mean, I struggled to feel heard uh, all across the board, whether it was at school, at home, you know, in my personal life. Um, and it was a really challenging time. You know, being young is a challenging time without any barriers. Um, so it, it really put a weight on me. And, you know, even after high school, moving into college, um, you know, my Lyme disease began to become under control, but depression seemed to hit even harder. Um, and school, you know, you feel like you have to go to school. You feel like, you know, you have to do it all at that age. Like that's kind of a societal expectation. And um, I fell into that very quickly and did not prioritize myself in any way in the process. Um, and it really just caused me to spiral even more. Mm -hmm. That's tough. I would say that I have to agree um, that my mental health started, or my mental illness rather, started showing up very early in my life, like yours. And very similarly, actually, with a lot of stomach aches, trips to the nurse, um, couldn't keep myself in class a lot of times because I would just get so 
anxious all the time. Um, but I guess I was really faced with the power of mental illness in second grade. I came home from school one day and my father was home. And that was strange to me because he was definitely a workaholic. And I always remember that he would leave the house like before anyone was up and wouldn't get home until like right before dinner time. So to have him there was kind of like, what's going on? And when I went inside, uh, he called me over and he said, your grandfather killed himself. And I was raised in a house with the expectation that men don't really talk about their feelings. So there wasn't a lot of conversation around it. Um, and I had like ran away, like out to my treehouse or whatever, and like tried to deal with those emotions, but you can't really work through all of that in a matter of two hours. So when I came back inside and no one was talking about it anymore, it was like, okay, time to bottle up and shut down. And I dealt with that mentality of just bottle everything up and just shut down instead for years to come all the way up and through high school. Um, I was still doing that and my trips to the nurse were so much more frequent and I was just always having stomach aches and um, in high school I felt like a really horrible stomach ache coming on and ended up having a panic attack in front of my entire grade because we happened to be at an assembly at that time. And that was the first time I had ever had a panic attack. And it was just like, it felt like a heart attack. And it was one of the scariest things I think that I've ever dealt with. And the mentality of the adults in my life were, was, oh, brush it off and just keep going. And so I was brought to the hospital because of that panic attack, thinking that it was a heart attack. And when they found out that it was quote unquote, just a panic attack, they sent me back to school to finish the day from the hospital. So that, I think that right there just shows the enormity of how much we don't prioritize mental health these days. Because if I go to the hospital for a sprained ankle or like a broken wrist, I'm not going back to school that day, you know, I'm going to take the day off, I'm going to rest. But we have been conditioned to think that mental health is something that we can work through in a matter of minutes if something happens, whereas it can be something that is a lot more long-term. Yeah, I actually, this is bringing back memories for me. Uh, I also had my first panic attack in high school, I think my freshman year. Um, and it's such a bizarre moment because you don't know what's happening. Um, and it's just this like panic taking over, not just your brain, it's your whole body. Your whole you know, body. I, I remember it must've been in the, ca the cafeteria, um, which somehow made it even worse because then, you know, everybody's in the cafeteria seeing it happen and just struggling to breathe and like mm. tears streaming down my face. Mm. Um, I did not go to the hospital. <laughs> Uh, but I definitely stuck it out for the rest of the day. I think the nurse had me like run my wrists under cold water to try to like calm myself down. Um, but outside of that, I don't recall having any su support. Um, you know, and I continued to have panic attacks on a very regular basis after that. Um, it was like a floodgate opened, you know, once you have one, 
you know, they keep on coming, mm -hmm. um, especially if there's no resolve. And what's interesting, I find about that, the nurse helping you, um, is that, yes, the nurse helped me, but the people that helped me the most were always my friends and my peers. My yes. peers were the ones that checked in on me the most after it happened. My teachers would be more concerned with getting me caught up with schoolwork and my peers, even the ones that I wasn't necessarily friends with or didn't talk to on a regular basis, were the ones that were concerned and checking in and shocked when I came back to school that day. That is so relatable. And honestly, even now, um, you know, being a young adult, I find that my peers are the biggest support. Um, you know, they understand and validate the experience more than anyone else I know um, and always make the effort to check in. Yeah. Whereas, you know, older generations, I find, brush it off much quicker. And struggle with it, I think, because I've found that the older generation was never taught how to talk about or handle their own feelings. And therefore, it's an uncomfortable conversation for them. Exactly. Whereas for our generation, it's normalized or becoming normalized at least. So it feels a lot more comfortable to walk up to your friend and say, I'm really depressed right now and I need a minute. Whereas walking up to an adult, it's, it's a different conversation. If you walk up and said, I'm feeling really depressed right now and I need a little bit, I need some support and I need some time. It's more of, well, how are you going to fix it so that you can get back to work? You know? Yep. <laughs> so. Yep. Which was very interesting for me. So after high school, I had gone to college and I never really wanted to go to college. Um, but like you said, college is normalized. It's what we're supposed to do. It's what we're expected to do. So I ended up going and at first I had a really good time. Um, I was enjoying meeting new people and getting the chance to study something that I finally found interesting. Um, but it was so stressful and I found myself shutting down a lot. My anxiety was just really getting to me. I started having a lot more panic attacks and my depression was so bad that I didn't want to get out of bed, but my anxiety was so bad that I knew if I didn't get out of bed that <laughs> I would make things worse. I would dig myself into a pit or go into a spiral. And so I found myself eventually just like locking myself in the library to study for upwards of 14 hours a day sometimes without leaving to like eat or go to the bathroom, anything. Um, and I studied so hard. And at one point I got a midterm back that I had spent weeks studying for. Um, and when I flipped it over and saw a big 23% on the back, I, I went into a spiral and I left that classroom, leaving everything I had brought with me behind. And I had gone back to my dorm room and I had actually made my second suicide attempt. Um, and while I was there, or no, the next day when I woke up, um, the mentality was, okay, how are we going to get you better so that you can get back to school? And in that moment, I realized that mental health is just not treated how it should be. 
and I made the decision to drop out of college. Um, and to be honest, it was one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made because there is such a pressure on young adults to go to college and to get a degree. And yes, it is important, I think, um, but I don't think it's the path for everyone. And I definitely don't think it is the only path that young adults can go down. Dropping out of college was one of the best things I think I ever did for my mental health. And because I was able to take care of my mental health in that moment, I was also able to take care of my physical health better as well. I got sober after dropping out of college because college was a huge reason for myself medicating. Um, and I was able to start focusing on what I was passionate about and what actually made me happy. And by focusing on what made me happy and actually chasing that, I have had so many less panic attacks um, in the meantime. And I've realized that like I've been able to find purpose and I've been able to find drive again. And now what works for me isn't necessarily gonna work for everyone, but I realized that by stressing myself out and by not focusing on my mental health, I was only making my mental health worse. I, I have a lot to say about, about <laughs> all of that. Um, yes, like especially in college, there's just so little room for flexibility and self-care, um, especially, you know, if you don't have the financial supports to, you know, have somebody pay for part of your school or your housing, or, you know, you don't have the ability to like stay at home and commute, things like that. Um, frequently folks are pushed into working while they're in school. Um, I worked the entire time that I was in school um, and I never got days off. You know, I would work six or seven days a week between school and work. And it really, became a necessity for me to function, to just bottle. Um, I never gave myself the space to process everything that I was carrying, which was a lot. Um, because if I did, I, it would derail my productivity. Um, you know, and professors and administration in the schools, um, they don't really offer the support that you need, at least not in my experience, um, you know, to miss class here and there or hand in an assignment late. Um, you know, there's always a penalty. Um, and then, you know, if you're handing something in late and then you get a penalty, you know, you beat yourself up more for handing it in late. Like, oh, well, it's my fault because I, I let myself take a break. Um, and a really gigantic regret that I personally have was not either taking a break from school or you know going to part time because I I just pushed myself um, to get through it. Going part time or taking a break did not feel like an option. Um, we live in a society that celebrates burning ourselves out. We really do, um, and I say that coming from a lot of experience. Um, and even like for myself, I knew that I needed support. I knew that I needed to take care of myself. Um, 
but because of what I was carrying at that point between school and work and everything else, I didn't feel like it was an option. Um, you know, even though I knew it was necessary and I'd go, yeah, I should probably, you know, find a therapist. Um, it wasn't until at least a year after college that I finally ended up seeking help um, because part of it was denial and avoidance and also just, you know, putting productivity above my own well-being um, and even not realizing, like, though I knew, you know, things weren't good, how bad it was because it was just the normal. Um, you know, I mean, I would weep driving to school my senior year, like every single day. I would cry in my car. I would have panic attacks in the hallways. There were even a couple of times I cried in class and would just sit there and cry in class in front of everyone else because I felt like this is just going to happen. And, you know, here I am. Um, <sighs> and how do you ask for help when what you're asking for is so stigmatized still? So how do we break down that stigma and make it so that people know that it is okay to ask for that help? You know, um, I mean, that's why we're here, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, through sharing stories and um, experiences and being open um, and realizing that vulnerability is actually a really beneficial thing in safe spaces. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, you know, we can be the proof that yeah. It is possible. It is necessary. Um, because and... for me, I didn't realize that it was okay to ask for help or to go to therapy until I realized that I had a friend who was going to therapy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're going to therapy as if it was like some kind of big secret. And I was like, I won't tell anyone. Don't worry. And they're like, no, it's okay. Like I go to therapy because it helps. And I was like, oh, what happened to like, make you go to therapy and they're like nothing I just wanted to take care of my mental health and I wanted to I wanted it to become something that was consistent in my routine so that I was intentionally putting myself first and intentionally taking care of myself they said you don't um run a marathon to get exercise like <laughs> you run a marathon and or you like start running as a way to like build up to the marathon right so it's something that you consistently do to accomplish a goal in the end right and so if my goal in the end is to be able to make it through the day without crying let's start small here <laughs> therapy is one step closer to that you know it's one step closer to processing understanding and giving myself the space I need in order to be the best version of myself so that's why it was important for me. It wasn't as an, okay, this huge traumatic event happened. Let's work through it. Not going to lie. A huge traumatic event did happen. <laughs> and that's what got me to get help. But the reason I've stuck with it is because I want to be able to make it through the day, week, month without breaking down um, and not understanding why. Because I think it's important to distinguish that breaking down and having a moment is okay. It's okay to feel those emotions. Because as a kid, I was always taught, don't show your emotions, don't feel it, bottle it up, keep it hidden away. But we have these emotions for a reason. So 
to feel them is super important, but to not let them hold you down and get you into a pattern of not taking care of yourself. That was the tricky part for me. Yeah. And I think a very important point that you made is that you know, you don't necessarily need to experience some major traumatic event for therapy to be beneficial. Um, I really think that having that support and just sounding board in general, someone neutral um, and unbiased to share with and work through conflicts with or stress with, um, you know, regardless of your mental health or uh, past traumas or not traumas. Um, it's huge. And, you know, you don't even necessarily realize um, places that growth are possible until you start exploring it. Um, I mean, there were things from, you know, my childhood and high school and, um, you know, things I had carried from relationships with me for years that I did not realize were present until, you know, six months into therapy. <laughs> um, you know, you don't necessarily realize the weight or impact that something has on you. Um, yeah. And for me, it's been like, a, it's been a huge tool, a huge, huge tool and turning point for me. Um, having a better understanding to slow myself down and um, process where emotions are coming from, why am I feeling this way? What is causing it? Um, and if it's something that's solvable, how can we solve it? Like, do we need to set boundaries? Do we need to communicate our needs? Um, boundaries. Boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I've been that, in therapy for four years <laughs> and working in the mental health field and um, just made mental health like a part of my daily life in every aspect and boundaries is still something that I struggle with and I'm very aware of it <laughs> because before I feel like you start working through this it's hard to have those boundaries for other people because you need to tell someone what's going on and you won't stop until someone finally recognizes that you need help. Mm -hmm. But now I'm on the flip side of it where I've stopped um, demanding other people's time, I guess, and emotional labor and gotten to the point where I don't set limits on my own emotional labor and I will give people all the time in the world or um, all the advice that they can ask for, even if I'm struggling. And that's something that I still have to realize that I am allowed to set boundaries and I'm allowed to take a step back because if you don't put on your own life mask first or whatever they say on the airplanes, then you can't help someone else put theirs on. You know? uh, yeah, that's been a huge skill that I've been working on personally. And especially, I mean, speaking for myself um, as a person who has experienced trauma um, and wants to avoid conflict, um, you want to please people or even like um, the anxiety of failure or disappointing people. Um, it kind of ingrains in you, even when you are in a better spot that 
you know, you need to be there to support people. You need to do this. You need to do that. Um, and though, you know, I am much more stable than I ever have been, um, you know, it, it still takes a toll on me to completely un, um, unboundaried or without boundaries, um, supporting folks or helping them or hanging out, going out, anything really with interaction, you know, when I need rest and just kind of pushing myself to be there um, is detrimental. And understanding, especially myself as an introvert um, and my needs to find balance, um, if I'm burnt out, I can't be there for someone in the best way possible. Um, so it ends up not being as beneficial to the person that you're interacting with as you might think, because, you know, if you're not taking care of yourself, um, you can't give them your best self to support them. Yeah. And that's hard to accept because <laughs> if you are someone who is a fixer or likes helping people, it's hard to realize that sometimes taking a step back is the best thing to do because it just feels so wrong. Yeah, and especially coming from fields like substance misuse prevention or mental health or, um, you know, working with youth and kids, um, a lot of what we are doing is helping. Um, mm -hmm. So it almost validates that instinct. Yep. <laughs> um, but it is still important, you know, to set that expectation yeah. for ourselves for care and rest, um, even more so working in fields like that. For sure. So it seems like our stories have lined up <laughs> pretty, <laughs> pretty, similarly. pretty similarly, which is pretty interesting all the way through college. So what happened after college? Um, for me, after college was a very dark period in my life. Um, you know, I had this expectation that like, okay, I can finally breathe. Um, school is over. I don't have to work and go to school. You know, I can finally just concentrate on like having a job. Um, and then I was surprised when I didn't feel any better. Um, and if anything, um, I felt worse because I didn't have all of the distractions that I did before. Um, and when I had to actually sit with my emotions or what really ended up happening for me was um, facing uncontrollable panic attacks um, that was disrupting my daily life, whether it was at work or, you know, at home, um, even, you know, right before work, okay, I'm having a panic attack. Now I'm calling out because I'm, you know, uncontrollably crying and struggling to breathe. Um, and I really hit like a spiral of um, unmotivation and discouragement and just pressure to perform, you know, the after college, like, okay, I graduated, but I still work at a grocery store. What's wrong with me? <laughs> um, and I just continued to carry that weight on myself. Um, to the point where it was disruptive and you know I came to the realization that I couldn't keep 
functioning that way. Mm. It wasn't possible. You know, I, and I think that's something that a lot of young adults deal with is that expectation of who we are supposed to be and when things will get better. That expectation of, oh, once I have a degree, then I'll be able to get my dream job and everything will fall into place from there. And then my mental health will be okay. But it comes to a point where we have to realize that our mental health isn't going to magically get better based on our accomplishments. And I really dealt with that too after college because after I had dropped out, um, I had been living at home with one of my parents for a little while as well. And I had told myself, okay, once I am not in college anymore, I'll be able to focus on my mental health and get better and it'll get better. But it still wasn't getting better. And so I came to the realization that in order for it to get better, I would have to actively change something about my life. And I had to figure out what that piece was. And for me, it was coming out as transgender. I realized that if I wasn't living authentically, then my mental health would just keep spiraling. And so I told myself that once I came out, then everything would be better. Um, but after coming out, I found myself homeless and so I realized, so I told myself, okay, once I get a house, then everything will be better. Okay. Once I get a job that will help me pay these bills, then everything will get better. And I kept on setting this benchmark of where everything would get better, but it wasn't until I realized that it's a day-to-day process that nothing would get better. So I had to start putting my mental health first, whether I was homeless, whether I was dealing with rejection, whether I was um, struggling to find a job that I felt I fit in and I felt passionate about. It wouldn't matter what benchmark I was meeting until I prioritized my mental health because nothing would ever be good enough to magically wave a wand and have everything go poof and be good. So I had to realize that it was going to be hard work and it was going to be like having a second job. And it was going to be something that I had to keep working at every day. Even if one day I slipped and I fell behind where I was the day before, I couldn't let myself get discouraged because I knew that that was all part of the healing process. And I know that healing isn't linear. I know that it's not a straight shot to mental wellness, that it's going to have ups and downs. And I'm going to have to try things like therapy and different medications. I'm going to have to keep trying different things until I find what works for me, you know? I do. (laughs) (laughs) I, (laughs) again, I'm processing it all. Um, it's true. I mean, part of nurturing yourself with or without support is doing the daily check-ins is saying what's working, what's not. Um, and for me, I mean, I, I said it before therapy was a big turning point for that. 
um, you know, having someone to check in with, um, having someone to offer options for tools and coping mechanisms. Um, and really for me, an integral part of that was medication. And it did take me a couple different um, prescriptions to, and even um, dosages to figure out the best thing. Um, and it has made a huge difference even in therapy with having the mental capacity to approach the topics and challenges that are necessary for my healing. Um, because I wouldn't be uh, stable the way I am right now without my medication. Um, and I think even medication is something that's so stigmatized. Yes. In yes. our lives. Um, when I was growing up, it was almost as if, if you're taking medication, like, then you're not okay. And you're, it, it was always viewed as like the person taking medication is broken and this is what's mm -hmm. fixing them. But as someone who now does take medication, I realized that it's not that we're broken and it's not that this is the solution. It's that we need support and this is how I'm choosing to support my brain. And so I know people who have tried medication and no matter what they try, it just does not work for them. And it doesn't seem like something that is going to help, but therapy is something. So realizing that what works for one person might not be what works for another person and taking the time to figure out what it is that works for you without beating yourself up. Because I had to go through four different therapists and I don't even know how many different medications and dosages, like you said, Heather, like you got to play around with it until I found I was at a point where I was stable enough to work on my mental health in other ways. I always describe both finding a therapist and finding a medication. Like it's, it's like dating. Um, you know, it's not. <laughs> no wonder I didn't like it. I was never good at either. <laughs> um, you know, it's not a one, one size fits all, you know, it, you need to find the dynamic, the balance that works for you. Um, mm -hmm. you know, just like a partner, you know, what suits me might not suit Jace or, you know, any other individual, um, and offering yourself that flexibility to explore the different options and supports um, to really find what serves you best. Um. And just like dating, sometimes things come up and you have to work through it, you know? <laughs> I was on medication for over a year that was working fine. And then one day it just wasn't working anymore. And so I had to be honest with myself and communicate that with the people who were trying to support me, whether that be my therapist or a psychiatrist, I had to advocate for myself. And yeah. as someone with trauma, advocating for myself was so hard for the longest time. I did not know how to ask for help. And I kind of resented it. I hated that I had to ask for help. But Eventually, I realized that everyone has to ask for help at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. And the longer I wait to ask, the harder it's going to get for me to yeah. ask that question. Yes. Um, 
I right. just keep I just can keep coming back to like I relate to that so much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I get a little redundant at points, but it's I mean especially with like the social stigmas that we've already touched upon half a dozen times. Um, you know the pressure to perform and show the vulnerability that you need help, whether it's from your family, your partner, um, your therapist, your provider, um, it's hard. Um, and I think typically there's a perception of shame around doing that, but you know, in reality, it, it makes you better. You know, it offers you an opportunity for improvement and growth. Um, and it really, really requires honesty, uh, both with yourself and your supports. Because if you can't be honest with yourself that you need help or that you need a change, you know, you aren't going to be able to communicate it to others. Um, so where are we now? I think now is a good time to kind of jump into that because um, we're kind of winding down. We are. <laughs> um, what have you learned from your experience with mental illness that has impacted where you are today? So much. Uh, I don't know where to start. Um, a lot of it has been about boundary setting, um, being realistic with what I can handle. Um, you know, whether that's with work or family or friends, um, you know, if you, if you don't feel mentally or physically up for, you know, doing a visit or a dinner or, you know, helping somebody move, <laughs> um, being able to say, like, I'm sorry, I want to support you. Um, can I help you another day? Can, can we do this instead? or even um, altering plans to make it feel more obtainable. Like, no, I can't do dinner, but maybe we can grab a coffee or go for a walk um, to try to find, like meet yourself halfway. Um, and honestly- I love that, meet yourself halfway. <laughs> Not even the other person, but meet yourself halfway because you have to manage your expectations of what you should do versus what you, can what do. you actually can do in yeah. the moment. Yeah. So that and like honesty for me, I mean, and a lot of that has been um, sitting with a lot of parts of myself and my identity and, you know, similar to you, like coming out as queer, exploring my gender identity, um, realizing I'm non-binary, um, which is a very, very recent discovery for me or realization. <laughs> um, because you know, even after finding stability, there were still things that felt off and felt like didn't click for me. And um, through a lot of self-reflection, I, you know, came to some very helpful conclusions about myself and my needs, um, which has taken a huge weight off of myself. Um, you know, I mean, I. I just, I find life more obtainable. I, you know, find myself finding moments of joy, um, which I can't say that I had before. Um, 
even, you know, doing dishes, uh, cleaning the house, you know, it gets done. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm always looking for opportunities for growth, whether it's um, finding trainings at work to do, uh, finding volunteer opportunities like this, uh, engaging with other LGBTQ folks. Um, so have you felt like your work has been impacted by your mental illness in a positive way? That's my question, because earlier oh. you talked about how it has impacted you because you would want to call out, but oh. has it ever impacted your work positively? That is a spicy question. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, honestly, yes. Um, I am a more empathetic person. Um, I'm a more understanding person. It gives me drive to continue to work and grow in a way I don't think that I had before. Um, yeah, I, it, it definitely does. Um, I also find myself making sure that I'm engaging with like a wide variety of folks in accessible ways, making sure that um, I'm not neglecting um, certain demographics within my lessons or um, different community engagement opportunities. Um, I, like I, I just really want to make spaces accessible for all. Um, yeah. So yes, yes, it's definitely affected me in positive ways. Um, though I think that's hard to reflect on. <laughs> I definitely agree. I definitely agree. It's a difficult thing to grasp. Um, and it's not something we most focus folks... so much on the negative of yeah mental illness and it's not something that's looked at as anything positive and mm -hmm. I'm not saying that uh, by asking these questions we're going to turn around and all of a sudden our mental illnesses are going to be our superpowers but um, with that being said there is a lot more to mental illness than just the bad parts and I didn't realize this for myself until I came across a quote that said be the person you needed when you were younger. And in that moment, I realized just how important the work that we do is and just how important it is that we have been where a lot of these kids and young adults and teenagers have been. Mm -hmm. um, because I never realized how empathetic, I guess, I was being in comparison to other colleagues because I had been there. And every time something was going on in one of my kids' lives um, that others didn't understand, I always tried to put myself in their shoes and would say, oh, mm -hmm. I remember when this happened to me as a kid and I hated it when like a teacher said this to me or like did that instead of like trying to help me work through it. So not that having a mental illness is necessarily a good thing, all the time because it can be very heavy, but it can help us learn how to navigate the world in a more kind and caring way, yes. I think. Yes, and I 
completely, completely agree, especially when working with youth. Um, they're in such a vulnerable space. Um, and I, I mean, I've already talked about it. You know, I didn't always feel welcome and comfortable or uh, heard in spaces when I was young and um, it really limited my growth. And I really, really strive to provide youth with the space that I didn't have growing up. Like I want them to feel loved. I want them to feel cared for. I want them to feel heard and understand that their individual experience is valid. Um, and, and that their ideas- beyond, Sorry, even going beyond just working with youth, like your friends, your family, everyone is looking to be understood. And sometimes we just need to take the extra moment to really process where they're coming from. It, it can put us in a space to have better relationships, to be a better friend, um, and to be a better support. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't have to have a degree in therapy or in social work to be a supportive friend, family, community member. Mm -hmm. You just need to offer yourself growth. Um, you know, and when faced with, with a place where it does need some growth, or maybe, you know, you're not serving yourself or your relationships in the best way possible, um, analyze what you can do to improve. And just try your best every single day. <laughs> yes. Even if your best is, you know, getting out of bed. Yeah. Your best doesn't have to be the best you've ever done. Sometimes your best nope. that day is just taking a shower, getting yep. out of bed, being flexible, a fresh pair of underwear. <laughs> yeah. And being flexible with yourself and understanding yeah. that, you know, even in the process of recovery, you know, I say I am the most stable I've ever been, but you know, I still have those days where dishes feel impossible to get done where, you know, maybe I spend six hours watching reality TV and it's okay because if that's what I need that day, that's what I need. Um, you know, when you really need to prioritize yourself. Meet yourself halfway. Yes, meet yourself halfway. Thanks for listening to the 603 Stories Podcast, a monthly podcast made by young adults for young adults. You can check out 603 Stories on Facebook or Instagram or at our website, 603stories.org. Just a reminder, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. And the crisis text line can be reached by texting to 741-741. Remember, you can make connections, get help, and find hope through 603 Stories.